0: Okay, you, you might like to you might like to turn to Daniel chapter eight, which is on page 434, in the blue Bibles there. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, um, or would like to take this one, please do. It's our gift to you. So uh, page 434 there, or Daniel chapter eight. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which had appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great." Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it.
1: Thank you, Roz. Well, for all of us who feel like Daniel, appalled by the vision and do not understand it, I am in that boat, or at least was, at least as far as I can tell. Let's pray and seek understanding. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much for your word. God, without which we would not live, we would not know you, we could not be in right standing with you. God, we thank you that in it you communicate uh, wonderful truth, your message of salvation, things that have happened, things that are happening, and things that are to come. Father, I pray that as we uh, seek uh, clarity and understanding from this chapter in the Bible, I pray that your Spirit would work in our hearts, in our minds, to understand and to respond. Father, may we not uh, leave from this place unchanged. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned before, voting day was yesterday. And for those of us who didn't stay up last night watching the live updates of the election and the counts, and well, we, some of us, we probably woke up this morning to discover that we have a brand new prime minister. If you didn't know that, I'm happy to be the bearer of news. Whether it is good or bad, I will leave up to you. For those who are eligible to vote, I wonder how you felt about our country and our world's future as you voted yesterday. What were the things that were, that were at the top of your mind as highest election priorities? Climate change? Housing affordability, religious freedom, health care, crime rates. Election times are interesting because they reveal to us the great hopes that we have for our lives and for the lives of our children, for the future of our nation. It's an exercise in exposing what we want the government to do about our future. That's why we have election promises. ScoMo and Albo toured the country for the last, I don't know how long, talking about all the problems that we face and all that their government is going to do to fix it. And now you don't have to talk to too many people or read too many news articles to know that many people are pretty skeptical about the government's ability to actually bring about their promises. You may even feel the same way. As we live in this world and in this life, do you ever feel that way about God's promises? Does it ever seem to you like he is taking too long to fix everything? Well, Daniel 8 is for you. As we saw last week, I think the, the four kingdoms represented by the statue in chapter 2 and the four beasts in chapter 7 refer to Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece and Rome. And as we saw last week from chapter 7, the fourth beast also points to all kingdoms that continued to, and today still continue to, oppose God. In this chapter of chapter 8, we get more detail about what will happen with kingdoms 2 and 3, Medo-Persia and Greece. And as we do, we'll see how the hope that this gave to God's people in exile as the original hearers of Daniel's prophecy His story is one that points forward ultimately to the hope that we have in Christ. You may have noticed uh, in your reading of the chapter this week, or uh, perhaps in the reading that we did just then, that the chapter is divided into two sections. Firstly, Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat, and secondly, the interpretation of that vision by Gabriel the angel. So for that reason, the way that we're going to work through it this morning will be to read sections of the vision itself in the first half and then dip into the second half for further clarity. Let me encourage you to keep your Bible open for that reason. And also, in the first point, we'll be looking at a a fair bit of history, like events that actually occurred. So, please bear with me if you tend to find that thing not particularly interesting. Uh, I will do my best to make it interesting, especially for perhaps the kids, although you guys might be more interested than perhaps some adults. (laughs) And so, as we move through this chapter this morning, we see three things that God holds, which I hope that we grasp one, He holds history, two, He holds hope, and three, He holds you. Let's begin with the first one He holds history. Uh, The reason that we become skeptical and cynical about election promises is because we know that neither ScoMo nor Albo hold history. Neither of them can promise that the world won't burn up due to global warming. Not even leaders more powerful than them can make that promise. Sure, we could hit you know, global emissions targets. We might actually be able to keep the promise that we, you know, we're going to do that. And you know, by certain years, we're going to keep developing renewable energy you know, and roughly predict, perhaps, according to our sciences, that you know, in 50 or 100 years, we, we might see what happened. But there's a reason that elections are all about future promises. That's because nobody is able to go into the future and check to see whether they're going to be able to keep them or not. So they can say anything, and we don't know whether that's actually going to happen. The only one who can tell you what is going to happen in the future is the one who knows it for sure. And that's what God does here for Daniel by showing him what is to happen. In verses 1 and 2, we see that two years after the vision of chapter 7... We find Daniel being shown here another one. And this time in the vision, he sees himself in Susa, which is a city near the eastern border of Babylon. It borders on Media and Persia. And you know what? It's perhaps significant that Daniel is here in this vision what he's about to witness of future events will actually make their start roughly in this region. So as you can see from the map, Cyrus came up from the southeast upwards and westwards in his campaign to conquer the the Babylonian kingdom. You can see where that red arrow is, is where Susa is. And if you consider that these visions happened before the writing on the wall in chapter 5, then it makes sense why Daniel is quite confident about Belshazzar's life being taken and the kingdom being given, uh, uh, being given to the Persians in that chapter. God had already shown to Daniel that the writing was on the wall even before the literal writing was on the wall. Well, let's read about the vision that God gave to Daniel this time around from verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased. And became great. When Gabriel interprets the dream for Daniel in verse 20, he doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about this ram. He simply tells us that its two horns represent the kings of Media and Persia in verse 20. But we know from history that this description of the ram is an accurate description of the Medo-Persian kingdom. You know, it's not insignificant that the ram is one beast, but its two horns represent the two different kings. And given the, the scanty and you know, less reliable sources that we have about the kingdom of media, it's debated today even about whether you could even call media a kingdom. And in 550 BC, Cyrus, the king of Persia, became their king. Now, this explains why uh, not only Daniel, but also the book of Esther, refers to uh, the, the Persians and the Medians as though they are one kingdom. You see that in Esther 1 and 10. And it is certainly true of history that the king and the kingdom who came later, the Cyrus of Persia, was the greater and the longer lasting of the two. It's interesting, you think about it, if a horn is longer and it's coming up out of the sea, surely the longer one will come up first, right? But here it is, he's saying the higher one is the one that came up last. The point being, the greater king, Cyrus, was the one who came later, after media, to bring you back to our map, and also you can see how in verse 4, it's an accurate description of the directions of Cyrus's campaign. He went westward and northward and southward. And even though saying that uh, he did as he pleased in verse 4 might be a bit of an exaggeration, it's certainly true that the Persian kingdom was the dominant kingdom for the next 200 years. He did as he pleased and became great. It's a recognizable description, isn't it? So often we associate greatness with being able to do whatever you please. I wonder, do you consider greatness the same way? Do you have your own dreams or visions about how much better life would be if you were great and you could do whatever you pleased, if you had all the resources in the world, if you had all the freedom in the world? May we seek the right kind of greatness. As Paul Tripp puts it, you're going to hunger for some success in life. May you hunger for the complete success of the gospel in your heart. It's important to realize that all this talk about kingdoms is describing the world powers at this place and this time. It would be like us today talking about America and China and Russia. But as we saw last week, such kingdoms, they are destined to fall. If not in this age by the sword of another kingdom, then when Jesus finally brings his And in the case of the ram, its downfall comes at the horns of a goat. Perhaps not the greatest of all time, but certainly a great kingdom. Let's read from verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Well, whatever floats your goat, hey? You might remember from last week that the the third beast, the leopard, had four wings. I think the floating goat here represents the same thing the swiftness of the Greek kingdom's rise to power. And as Gabriel later on in verse 21 explains who the goat is, we discover that it represents Greece and the great horn represents its first king. Coincidentally, uh, the king that the great horn is representing is known in history as Alexander the Great. And as I mentioned earlier from the description in verses 6 to 7, you can see how Daniel's vision also gives us a sense of that story. Alexander's swift conquering of the Persian Empire in under 10 years really is one of the incredible feats of history. But of course, that was not going to last. Alexander died at the young age of 32 probably from a fever. And notice like we saw last week that the hand of God is behind it all in what one commentator calls the divine passives. You look there in verse 8 he says the great horn was broken. Daniel doesn't tell us who broke the horn but considering the context of chapter 7 and the whole book I think the answer is pretty obvious. As I mentioned last week, after Alexander's death, his kingdom was divided among his generals. After some squabbles and other attempts to gain power, the four that settled into their kingship were Ptolemy, Seleucus, Lysimachus, and Cassander. I'm sure I botched at least three of those pronunciations. And notice how Gabriel, in verse 22, he says uh, that they did not have his power. That's true. After Alexander the Great died, the Greek kingdom, it never reached the same heights that it got to under his rule. Because of the speed of Alexander's conquest, the great kingdom was made up of Persians and other nationalities, not just Greeks. And given the difficulty of multiculturalism, even today, even though we have so much travel and migration and experience and relationships with people from other cultures, it is still a challenge to live in a society where there are many cultures present. Can you imagine what that would have been like? The strain that that would have been on the kingdom where that was just rarely the case. Especially when it has been divided up into sections. It was destined to fall apart. The Greek kingdom was severely weakened after Alexander's death. But then, of course, next comes another little horn. Let's read from verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression and it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Now I know what you're thinking or at least perhaps. Little horn, right? Like the little horn in chapter seven. We saw the little horn before. But aside from being uh, different kingdoms, remember the little horn was in the fourth beast, there are a couple of key differences between the horns from chapter 7 and chapter 8. Firstly, the horns in chapter 8, they are features across both animals, both the ram and the goat, to represent kings, unlike in chapter 7. The horns there only appear on the fourth beast. And also, this little horn in chapter 8, it doesn't have eyes or a big mouth, thankfully. And perhaps most decisively, though, is the fact that the kingdom is given to the saints after a war with the little horn in chapter 7. And nothing like that is mentioned in chapter 8. So even though the horns in both chapters refer to kings, I think they're actually referring to different kings, the, the, the little horn with the big mouth in chapter 7 is not referring to the same little horn in chapter 8. As Braden mentioned during question time last week, some have tried to identify the little horn in chapter heaven as Antiochus IV and Epiphanes, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes, which I don't think fits very well. As for the little horn in chapter 8, though, this is actually almost universally recognized to refer to that king. Antiochus IV. Here is a bust of him from the Berlin Altes Museum. It's interesting because we uh, we get quite a description of the kind of king that he is and the sorts of things that he does, both in this earlier section of chapter 8 and also in greater detail uh, where Gabriel describes him later on we discover that uh, he is of bold face and one who understands riddles. The precise meaning of this, uh, particularly the bold face comment, is is a little bit uncertain, but we we know that it is definitely not positive. It's not a good thing. It's possible that it could actually even refer to Antiochus' reputation of being just a little bit crazy. Have a listen to this description of him from the historian Polybius. Antiochus Epiphanes, nicknamed from his actions Epimanes, the madman, would sometimes steal from the court, avoiding his attendants, and appear roaming wildly about in any chance part of the city with one or two companions. If you're interested in that kind of thing, you can go on to read about plenty of his other wacky things that he does from Polybius. It's free online. Uh, one of the reasons that most interpreters are reasonably confident that this little horn is referring to him is also because other books speak of Antiochus using very similar language to what Gabriel uses in verses 24 and 25. So, for example, the apocryphal books of First and Second Maccabees especially paint this picture. You see it there, he says, deceitfully, he spoke peaceable words to them and they believed him, but he suddenly fell upon the city, dealt it a severe blow and destroyed many people of Israel. So you see there, we read about his cunning and his deceit and the fact that he attacked and destroyed many in Israel. He did this several times. There were many other attacks where he destroyed many. And you can see that reference in verse 25 of Daniel 8. And so as he did this, as he rampaged and ransacked the Israelites, he threw down to the ground and trampled on some of the stars or the host of heaven, as verse 10 says, which in this context I take to refer to the people of Israel. Perhaps more importantly, as we see in verses 11 and 12, Antiochus overthrows the sanctuary and takes away the offerings that were being offered to the Lord. Now, the translation in the ESV is a little bit clunky, so let me read read it to you in the NIV to give you a clearer sense of what it's saying. It, being the little horn, Antiochus, set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. These verses, they show the defiance that Antiochus shows towards the Lord. He sets himself up as though he's on equal terms with God. And he shows that in the way that he treats the central focal point of Israel's worship, the temple. As the books of Maccabees recount... Antiochus forbade the Jews from making sacrifice in the temple and then he eventually even turned it into a temple of Zeus. His rule over Israel was so complete that Daniel describes him as great as the prince of the host. And he Threw truth to the ground and he prospered. Do you recognize when an earthly king throws truth to the ground? I think one can certainly argue that this is happening in our Western societies. My brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, let me urge you to continue to seek truth to advocate for truth and to speak it lovingly in these days. You know, truth has always been under attack by those who rise up against God. Antiochus did it. Many others have, and they continue to. And don't be surprised when those who do so act and prosper. You see, when you look at Uh, Gabriel's description in verse 25, Antiochus' greatness was still limited by the sovereign hand of God. You see there, he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. That same phrase, which we saw back in chapter 2, shows God's hand once again overpowering yet another earthly king. No king is greater than the prince of the host, the prince of princes, the most high God. It was true then. It was true when the vision actually unfolded in history. And it is still true today. Now, I tell you all of this history because the theological truth that we have seen all throughout the book, the great climax of which was displayed in all its glory in last week's chapter, the truth that there is no earthly king that even comes close to the dominion and the power and the glory of the Most High God. That truth, that's not just something that we see in visions or that we read about in books. It is one that has been demonstrated and proven in real time and in real life on the pages of history. Such details being foretold hundreds of years before they occurred are further evidence that God is the one who writes and who holds history. And if so, then He is the God who has written the future from this point on as well. He holds history. And because He holds history, then only He could hold the kind of hope that doesn't just result in broken promises. And that brings us to our second point. He holds hope Dashed hopes and broken promises are very often at the core of the most heartbreaking and saddest and tragic of stories, which is one of the reasons why the gospel is good news. Let's read from verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and hosts to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. These uh, holy ones are likely to be angels of some sort. Perhaps even Gabriel is one of them who appears in the second half. Uh, whatever they are specifically, is not all that important. What matters is that they are communicating something to Daniel by talking to each other and then speaking directly to him. Notice the pain in the question. How long? How long will this disruption, this destruction, this raging of the little horn go on for? How long will Antiochus IV be allowed to do this? Have you ever asked that question? How long will this continue to rage on? It's one of the most challenging questions that confronts our faith. How can God continue to let this happen without doing something about it. It was a question that we had in question time last Sunday. Why would the sovereign God allow beasts to ravage the earth for so long? But did you notice the assumption in the Holy One's question? The question that he asked was not, why is the Ancient of Days allowing this to happen? But, how long will this happen? They understood that the little horn could only do what he did by permission of the will of the sovereign God. They understood that his power does not even come from him. He noticed that in verse 24. I know that this is an ongoing struggle for us as Christians. I had a conversation with somebody this week about it. There are good responses in God's Word, even if they may not tie everything up in a neat bow. The answer to the question why... And this is why I want to encourage you to adopt the same posture as these holy ones in verse 13. You know, it is perfectly okay to ask the question of why, of why God would allow that. But ask it with the confidence, knowing that when you ask how long, you know that you will receive an answer. This little horn will have his day for 2,300 evenings and mornings before the sanctuary is restored. And you notice further on, I don't know what verse it is, verse 20-something, he says, "The, the vision of the evenings and the mornings, indicating that this is a vision referring to a period of time that has a set amount of boundaries. God's promises, they are not government election promises. He doesn't say, well, you know, I hope that by the year 167 BC, we should have been able to contain Antiochus. You know, I'll just I'll make sure that I can gather all of my resources and marshal everybody and I'll assemble my cabinet and we'll make sure that we get it all done. No, the time is set and the sanctuary will be restored. Can you imagine how that would have sounded to the Israelites in exile? Yes, they understood that calamity would come upon them at some point in the future. They knew that the temple would be defiled by and would be taken over by a foreign king. But they could find hope in the fact that it would not go on forever. Antiochus would be brought down, not by a human hand. Scholars have debated what the 2,300 evenings and mornings stand for. It could refer to the evening and morning sacrifices that happened in one day, thus making the total number of days half the number, 1,150, making it close to three years. And three years was about how long Antiochus Epiphanes persecuted the Jews for. If you're wondering um, you know, what we pay people to get PhDs to do, this is the kind of thing. It could also just refer to 2,300 days, which would be a more natural reading of it, it. and if so, then that would be roughly six or seven years. Uh, The number doesn't really connect to anything in history. Or, as is often the case in apocalyptic visions, the numbers could simply be symbolic. I'm not sure exactly what that would represent, uh, but that could be what it is. Now, whichever view you take, all of them, they communicate, at the very least, one thing. The time for the transgressions, the transgression that makes desolate, will come to an end. And it did. Antiochus died, and the Greek Empire was overtaken by the Roman Empire. Brothers and sisters, our hope is not in a God who is still figuring out how the end is going to go. It is not in a God who is able to assess the situation and to predict what He needs to do in order to be able to get as close to the mark of what He wants as possible. No, our God is one who knows for sure and who holds history in His hand and given the amount of times that we have, uh, we've discovered that truth through the book of Daniel, I imagine that you know that to be true. But how does a lack of trust in that truth show up in your life? We are fickle creatures, aren't we? Prone to forgetting God's sovereignty, prone to wandering away. Rather than asking, Lord, how long? We more often ask, Lord, how could you? And in so doing, we expose the distrust in our hearts the doubt that we have, that God knows what He's doing and that we can entrust our future to Him. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord. He has not forgotten nor has His story run away from Him. His story about you What he promises, you can count on. What he promises, you can put your hope in. And the hope that Daniel's vision gave to God's people in exile would foreshadow an even greater hope that would come to God's people in Christ everywhere. And that brings us to our final point. He holds you. This whole vision is primarily about these kingdoms of Medo-Persia and Greece and the kings Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes. But as you trace the themes of Daniel's vision here through the Bible and through to the New Testament, you'll see that it is picking up a thread that finds its climax in Jesus. When Daniel seeks an explanation for the vision, the voice that he hears which is likely God's, tells Gabriel to make him understand it. And we read that Gabriel tells him that this vision is for the time of the end. Now that phrase in the immediate context is pointing to the end of the Greek kingdom and its kings. But as we saw last week, there's a sense in which it reaches beyond the goat and beyond the Greek kingdom to something past it. The defiling and the eventual destruction of the temple, that was certainly an abomination. Antiochus would rage against the prince of princes and his saints and be broken by no human hand. And the kings of the Roman kingdom would rise up against the prince of princes, the prince of peace. the one whose kingdom would not be built on swift military might or an uncontainable ego, but on His love, on His mercy, and ultimately, His sacrifice. Satan would offer Jesus the kingdoms of the world if only Jesus would worship Him. But Jesus knew that there was only one God, one true King worth worshipping. And even though the temple of Jerusalem, rebuilt by Jesus' day, would eventually be destroyed four decades after his life, death, and resurrection, there was another that was of far greater significance. Have a listen to John 2 from verse 19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So many of the Jews were looking forward to the restoration of the temple. But Jesus showed how he fulfilled everything that the temple had ever represented. He opened the gate to the kingdom that would welcome people from all across the world and unite them in spirit and truth, worship, The kingdom that all people from His resurrection and ascension to His return again sometime in the future would enter by putting their faith and trust in Him for salvation. Friends, if you're here this morning and you have not done that yet, let me invite you to do so today. Don't continue to rise up against God and to set yourself against the prince of princes but instead turn away from your own greatness, from what you perceive to be your own desires to do whatever you like, to do as you please, and repent of your sin and put your faith and trust in Him. You see, it's only through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that you may find forgiveness of your sin and be welcomed into the kingdom of God. It's through trusting in Jesus that you may lay hold of God's promises of freedom today and of eternal joy with Him in eternity when Christ comes again. If you're yet to do that, let me encourage you to do so and to come and talk to me afterwards. And brothers and sisters, do you long for the end of pain and suffering in this world? Of your own? Do you long for the restoration of creation and the coming of God's kingdom? Do you ask sometimes, how long? Oh Lord, how long? If you do, then find comfort in this passage. God's promises are yes and amen. He will bring them about in the same way that the ram and the goat could not step off the pages of God's story and do whatever they pleased. So no ruler today, no calamity today, no trial that you are facing could break the promises that God has given to you in Christ. He promised that he will be with you till the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. He promised that nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord Romans 8:38 And he promises that nothing will be able to stop him from coming back and bringing his people into his kingdom John 14:3 And as Revelation 22 reminds us behold he is coming Soon. There is an expiry date on this age, and there is a birth date on the age to come. And both of those will happen when He comes again. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Keep the words. He holds history, He holds hope, and He holds you. He will surely come again to do as He promised and bring us to Himself. So hold on to His promises. And hold on to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice and take comfort in knowing that you hold all things and in knowing that our Lord and our Saviour is coming again. Father, may we Be reminded of that today and every day until we see Him face to face. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.